You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. What's up, 26er family? Welcome to another episode of the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Jason Spear. Jason is a former Obama staffer and worked as a deputy communications director for the U.S. House of Representatives. He has since gone on to pursue a master's of public administration from NYU and, among other things, serve as a co-founder of the Hustlers Guild. The Hustlers Guild is a nonprofit that helps underserved youth pursue careers in STEAM. That's science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. They are doing important work. They host seminars, company visits, and coding and professional development workshops. Jason walks us through his journey from Piedmont, Alabama, to the nation's capital, to now juggling many things, including working as a special assistant and fellow for the New York office of the mayor's Young Men's Initiative. Without further ado, take a listen, and I hope you enjoy. Jason. Hey. Welcome to the December 26th podcast. Well, thank you all for having me. I'm happy to be here today. And we are happy to have you. You brought great energy, despite the crazy that we've gone through this morning. (laughs) I try to do that wherever I go. Like, put out positive vibes, positive vibes, come back to you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, production challenges, they happen. We roll with the punches, but it's great when we have somebody coming in who can roll with the punches as well. Let's do this. I'm here. So let's get into it. Tell me, who is Jason Spear? Who is Jason Spear? Uh, Jason Spear is a creative, uh, politico. A problem solver, a provocateur, a lover, friend. I'm on a bunch of things. I wear a bunch, a number of hats. So, like, I'm happy to be all those to a number of different people. So I'm just going to pull out provocateur because people don't use that word <laughs> often. And I don't know if anyone has ever used it on the show. So help me understand what you I mean. Like, like, my friends, like, I, I'm in several group chats. So, mm-hmm. like, I try to drop stuff in there to get people to think about things, like like how we feel about a number of different ty- topics. Like, it could be Jesse. It could be, like, the Mueller report. It could be something as random as insecure. Like, mm-hmm. like how someone feels about something in the media or something on a television show. And I try to play devil's advocate a little bit. Mm-hmm. Then I also, like, bring in some valid points to back up my argument. So that's what I mean by being a provocateur, uh, trying to be on the edge of someone or on the periphery of, like, different conversations about what's going on. Interesting. So you're a Southern boy? Yeah. I'm yeah. from Piedmont, Alabama. See, that's like a Southern boy for real. Yeah, for real. Now, what I'm not used to, because, you know, I, I know a lot of people from the South, and generally you guys have, um, I call it a stereotype of being amenable and agreeable, <laughs> right? And, right, there's a history of resistance there, absolutely, but I don't know yeah. if I've ever heard a Southern boy say, I'm a provocateur, Yeah, right? well, I come, from a, <laughs> I come from a large family of people who have spoken their minds. I was mm-hmm. raised by some very strong women Mm -hmm. and they have always taught me like to be strong and compassionate and be humble as well but also like if something's wrong speak out for it or speak out against it or speak up for people who don't have a voice Mm -hmm. um i have uh, growing up i saw cousins who were freedom riders uh in alabama i have family members who have done a lot of great things uh, in their communities and and abroad and so that really has taught me how to be the person I am today. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I give a lot of credit to my mother for being a single mom and taking me to all these places and signing me up for different things. Uh, this is funny. Uh, growing up, uh, my mom would tell me, tell, like, laugh at this, but I was a drug baby. Mm-hmm. And it's not in the sense of, like, my, my mother was on drugs. She just drugged me wherever she went. <laughs> like, I, 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 would, I was drugged to church, Bible study, vacation Bible school, uh, choir rehearsal, like, wherever... Like, she felt a need for me to be. You slept then, on many a bench, right? Many oh, a church I, bench. Oh, I couldn't, <laughs> I, you couldn't sleep on a church bench. You would get pinched. It would be the pinch in the silent. Like, I wish you would scream. But, uh, like, I appreciate her for getting me active and motivated mm-hmm. and, like, interested in things at a very early age because I still keep that motivation now. Uh, I I really have a disdain for being in the house. Um, and I'm always active. And I don't, I don't like having idle time. My cousin, when I was... Uh, very young. Well, not very young. This was like when I was in college, probably a sophomore or junior in college. And I had a lot of idle time, like between internships and 
And he was like, so what are you doing? Like, do you have a hobby? Do you have something that you're really interested in? Because you can have a career, but you need something to keep your mind always moving and trying to figure out what your passions are. So uh, from that moment, I always try to find something that interests me. Mm -hmm. So I have like a number of different hobbies and things that I do uh, with other people that always keep me occupied. So given those like strong roots in Piedmont, Alabama, being a church boy and all that great stuff. The PDT. That's what we call Back then, was there a plan to uh, be like, I'm going to come to New York no. or I'm going to move to the Northeast? What would, what did your vision look no. like back then? Uh, my plan, New York was never on my bucket list. Mm-hmm. Uh, D.C. was always on my bucket list and in, in my periphery and like what I wanted to do, where I wanted to end up. Um, growing up, uh, I thought I was going to become an attorney. Um, that's that's was my ultimate goal. I went to undergrad at uh, Tuskegee University and I majored in political science and history. And my thing was to be kind of like Thurgood Marshall, mm-hmm. kind of like Johnny Cochran, like all these attorneys that I saw uh, on television. Because like, if you're growing up in a small town, you, very, you have very limited options of what you see around you. Like, you're not exposed to a lot of things. Like, I had an uncle who was an assistant principal. Uh, I, I had people who were in the community organizers and space, and I had cousins who went off, like, and did other things. But I didn't know the realm of possibilities, what you could actually be. Uh, and I thought becoming an attorney was, like, the main thing that I wanted to be because I, could, I, can, I knew how to... Uh, rationalize and arguments, be very analytical, uh, speak to different groups of people. And I thought this is what an attorney does. Uh, it wasn't until I was a junior, uh, leaving, uh, exiting my junior year of college when I moved to Georgia for an internship at DeKalb County Public Defender's Office uh, that I actually found my calling. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, part of my calling. Um, I knew I didn't want to be uh, an attorney after that, but I knew I wanted to do more because during that same time, simultaneously, I had an internship with the Obama campaign. So mm-hmm. I was working at DeKalb County Public Defender's Office as an intern. I was then uh, interning for the Obama campaign. Neither neither one of these jobs were paying, and I sold Metro PCS phones. Oh, boy, and that's I was when, like, like, Metro PCS was bootleg, too. Bo- exactly. <laughs> Very bootleg. And I was at a mall kiosk. <laughs> Uh, by worst. myself, like, and y'all yeah, want to know how much training I got to be at this mall kiosk? Three weeks of training. It was like real training, like with people near me. It was like, oh, you get three weeks. We think you're smart enough. <laughs> Go to this mall kiosk and like help people pay their bills and give them deals on phones. I was like, I don't like this is the first time I'm breaking down cash registers by mm-hmm. myself and doing all this other stuff. But like, that's another story. Like, I fell in love with like campaign life and politics during that time. Um, still, New York was nowhere like in my mind, but I know I wanted to do something with like politics and policy and stuff like th- of that nature and campaigns. So I took what I learned back to Tuskegee. I helped people register to vote in Tuskegee. Then, of course, we know in 2008, President Barack Obama won. 2009 comes around. I'm, I graduate from college. I'm, I took the LSAT. Uh, I got accepted into like two or three schools, not very top tier schools, but I knew I got accepted into law school. Um, and I was still going over the idea of what I wanted to do. I uh, took time off and moved to Georgia, and I worked on a campaign for Georgia State House. The candidate was Asha Jackson. I, I appreciate her. Thank you, Asha, if you're listening somewhere, for giving me uh, my first opportunity to work on a campaign. I met Asha, another gentleman, William Sellers, and they took me under their wing and like really taught me the ropes of campaign life. Mm-hmm. And during the same time, I applied for uh, an internship with the Obama, uh, well, at the White House, the Obama White House, and I was accepted. Mm-hmm. So as soon as the campaign ended, I was able to move to uh, Washington, Washington D.C. in February of 2010, and I spent a like majority of my 20s there, and I learned a lot of life lessons. So working there and going to different places, like New York wasn't on the list, but this is part of the journey that got me to where I am now. Okay, so take me back to interning um, on the Obama campaign, yeah. right? Because I remember, so I was in law school yeah. during that 
that era. And we had a black dean who was from Chicago and she knew them. So, you know, she got us involved early. Yeah. Like it was, you know, we we knew it was coming and the swell was happening. And I remember the moment. I remember the specific moment because I wasn't one of those people who was like, oh, you know, a black man is run, running. He got this in the bag. Like he's charismatic. I remember his 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 speech at the DNC. And I was like, he's this is something special. But I remember the exact moment when I remember being like, this is about to be like no campaign we've ever seen. Yeah. And it was I got a text message from the campaign, which sounds so common now. Yeah. But back then, Candidates weren't doing that, right? So I remember getting on Twitter. Yes, I remember getting like some "Yes, we can" text, and I didn't, I didn't even know how they got my phone number. Like it was through some volunteer sign up or whatever. Did you have a moment like that where you were like, you know, interning or before or after, where you're like, this man is something special, and he could go all the way here? Well, I, I knew I knew my sophomore year. I knew I knew before he started running because mm-hmm. uh, I did see the speech and I was very like engaged, like with stuff going on around that time. Like I saw his DNC speech. Then I was also I ran for freshman class president at Tuskegee University. I became freshman class president. Uh, like I was like very involved at SGA. I was elections commissioner for two and a half years before I decided to run for something else. And I saw this man because I. Like, I was trying to mirror my journey after him instead mm-hmm. of just trying to find my authentic journey. As a lot of, like, young people trying to mold themselves, like, you see somebody you want to aspire to be. And it's good, but try to find your own journey, too. Right. So when I saw him, I was like, I want to do that. Knowing that it was only two African-American senators, male senators at that time, and he was the second one. And now we've seen a, a number since. But I saw his journey, and I was very inspired then. Of course, when I got on the campaign, I was even more inspired. And after he won, like, I was like, I'm all in. This Mm -hmm. is what I want to do. And this is where I want to be. And this is who I want to work for. And I'm just blessed and amazed at the opportunity I got. So what was the shift like moving from the South to D.C.? Because I have lived in D.C. um, and have a lot of thoughts about it. (laughs) But we're not here to talk about me. So what what was that that transition like for you? Uh, It was was an interesting transition. Uh, Like moving to D.C. in my early 20s, very early 20s. Uh, I really... I really didn't travel to D.C. like often, often. I remember going when I was in middle school, somewhere in high school, like I stayed with like my uncle and aunts uh, who lived in the area. Uh, but when I moved, like I moved during snowpocalypse. Oh, my uh, God. So this was 2010. Like if you remember snowpocalypse, like in February, early March of 2010, I, I'm from Alabama. <laughs> Uh, I have no big winter coat. I have no gloves. And I came to I came to DC area with a pea coat, no gloves. Oh, and I'm I'm walk, wearing a suit every day and I have to walk down a hill, walk to a bus stop, get on the bus to get to a train, and get to the train downtown DC, uh Pennsylvania Avenue. I'm I wasn't accustomed to public transit. Mm-hmm. I had to get accustomed to public transit really quick. Had to get a bigger coat and some gloves. <laughs> and I had leather bottom, leather sole shoes. I was about to say, so like I'm dressed up. I was sharp. <laughs> but I was like, this wasn't the weather for me. I didn't have any thermals and nothing, Jesus. <laughs> uh, and I, I made it. And I felt like like having like I didn't have a car. I didn't have like any of like the, the things that most people would have at the time. I had I left my car in Atlanta. I was living with family. Family. And it was a humbling experience knowing that, you know, you're starting over, you're learning how to build yourself mm-hmm. and build your network and build yourself as a person uh, in this situation. And I matured as an adult and I appreciated all the challenges that I had to overcome. It was a culture shock at first, um, but I'm happy that I like I, I visited before, visited mm-hmm. D.C. before and lived in Atlanta for a little bit. Being there, I was just so welcome to the opportunity working at the White House to enter that space where I wanted to be. Like, you could have you could have put me uh, in even worse situations than I probably would have, like, been as driven. So what work were you doing at the White House? Uh, so I was doing basic intern work mm-hmm. uh, for the longest time. So this is the beginning of my journey. So this is, like, a recent college grad who also interned on the campaign. I was working in presidential personnel, so I would do all the high— well, I was doing special appointments, so I would do all the high-end bedding of uh, presidential appointees. So I'd okay. do background check, dandle strings, and all this other stuff to make sure that we're a good fit in the Office, but I also was able to g- given opportunities to work on to see like what's going on on healthcare. Like it was, a, I moved to DC and worked in the uh, administration during 
the time where healthcare was tr being passed. So I had to look up and see what, like, what members were saying, what senators were saying, so we can compile a report and figure out like who do we need to talk to to get them to vote for the healthcare legislation. I stayed there for, at the White House until August. Uh, so I was there for a good, good amount of time, but good, like, seven months. Mm -hmm. uh, and I really met a lot of friendly faces and connections that I continue to keep in contact with today. Uh, actually, like the founding members of an uh, organization that I founded are all worked at the White House around the same time. And we've been friendly and friends since then. So uh, I, I wouldn't say like just friends, they've become mm -hmm. family. Uh, just like having being at an HBCU, being in a place where you enter in like I'm only child, so I entered in being only child, but when I left, I had like a lot of aunties, uncles, mm -hmm. and cousins, like people that can come by my house now, I'm like, all right, we bonded. It's So that's the experience that I left with. So when you were there, you know, because I've been an intern, you know, yeah. several times, and you are like the bottom rung on the totem yep. pole. Did you feel like I'm just a rank and file, you know, a member of this organization, or did you feel like I'm, I am a part of history? <laughs> Like I felt, I felt like I was a part of history. Um, like I honestly would, like I've had opportunity. Like during that time, I had opportunity to stay uh, longer, but I knew what I wanted to do, uh, and I saw like. Again, I, I was trying to mirror my journey after other people to see because I didn't really have like examples, but I knew what I wanted to do, like my end goal. So after leaving there. Um, well, like, talk about the intern experience a little bit. I felt like my work was valued and mm -hmm. valuable, and I was helping people, but I knew I wanted more. So okay. I left there, and I had an opportunity to work for a member of Congress, and I was with her for five and a half years. Wow. I, yeah, it's... Uh, I'm, I'm kind of a masochist in that way. And I like being busy. I think I, in the beginning of the story, I told you, like, I always like doing work mm -hmm. and I like being involved and working for a member. Uh, it gave me the opportunity to always do something different. So I didn't have a routine in my life, even though I thought I would have a routine, like going in that day. I was like, nope. Uh, let's throw some curveballs at you. You got to fix these problems. Mm -hmm. So I fixed a lot of problems and uh, it, it gave me the energy, like, to always see like deeper, deeper mm -hmm. levels and figure out how I can help people and figure out like what the situation is calling for and figure out reading the room a little bit more. So I was with her as her uh, legislative assistant and deputy communication director and her director on the caucus on black men and boys for five and a half years. And it's still, that is a real family there too. I still can call them up. I actually call a member up uh, often and just harass her. So I, I loved my time there. That's a long time for that space, yeah. for a political space. If you said I was at Goldman Sachs for five and a half years, I'd be like, oh, okay. But <laughs> doing that work for that period of yeah. time um, is no small feat. At that juncture, while you were in that that role, was it a comfort or were you like, no, I'm here because I'm still learning something. There's something more for me to get. Or do you think that you had gotten complacent at some point? I think like my last year, I began, like maybe last year, a year and a half, I was beginning becoming complacent. Mm -hmm. uh, I know it was a comfortable role. I was making the money that I wanted to make and I had the connections that I can do anything. And I wanted to challenge myself a little bit more. Mm -hmm. So around 2016, uh, I was trying to look at exit plans mm -hmm. and I, I was applying for graduate school um, because I had a clearer vision of what I wanted to do uh, as an end game and what type of degree would help me get to that next level. And I applied for schools in, in the area and I also applied for schools in the New York. And I had a friend who was in a, a master's program at NYU, and I was talking to him about the master's program, and he told me, like, this is a great school, like, you should apply. I applied, and I got into NYU Wagner, which is a public, uh, public service school. I'm getting a master's in public administration. And I was going to stay in D.C. if Hillary would have won okay. and just thought about, like, getting a job in the administration. But I think everything worked out the way it did, and I was able to go to uh, accept the offer to go to NYU on a full tuition scholarship, wow. which is amazing. Like, like I, I say it's nothing but prayer and everything that my mom, like, calls out today. I was like, it's my prayers, her prayers, the family prayers, and I was able to come here with less debt. Uh, and enjoy a New York experience and continue to build connections and continue my career in public service. I'm currently uh, working in the mayor's office as the same time I'm completing my degree and doing several other things as well. And we're going to talk about those several other things. But I do yeah. want to talk about you know, Hillary losing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it worked out for you, obviously, yeah. because it, it, it 
force, you know, force you in another direction or yeah. push you in another direction. That was the right decision for you. Yeah. Um, I was never, I'll admit this on the record, I was never a blind Hillary supporter. Okay. I had some issues with some comments that have been made in the past. Same. And, you know, all that stuff. Same. However, one of the things that I kept saying, you know, leading up to the election was this is not a slam dunk. And I wish people would stop talking about it as, like, as, as if it is. Like, yeah. do not underestimate <laughs> people who support this yeah. man. Like, the, the, the middle America, like, all because that stuff. they are staunch supporters of this man. Like, mm -hmm. And we were lukewarm supporters of Hillary. Like, it's, it's difference between, like, okay, this man could say nothing wrong. He said, like, everything wrong. Mm -hmm. He did everything wrong. And there still were people uh, out there to support him. He even said it himself. He was like, I can go in the middle of, like, Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody. I still won't lose any support. Mm -hmm. uh, we... Like, I think now we we are finally realizing that no one's perfect and there's no perfect candidate and we need to coalesce uh, behind, like, a, a voice uh, for us and just try to guide them in the direction that they need to go to understand, like, what's best for our country instead of just, like, you know what? They said this 15 years ago. I, I can't trust them. I right. can't do anything. They, they ain't changed since then. So were you in D.C. on Election Day? Oh yeah. What was help help for the for the listeners? Depressing. Yes, tell us what the energy was like that day. Uh so the energy was <laughs> so during that same time, I had a friend who was running for D.C. City Council, and he had an after party. I was like, I'm going to his after party. It was good for him because he was winning, so I was mm -hmm. happy to see him win. But then I was like, looking at the national election, I was like, yeah, it's time for me to go home. I just <laughs> want to be in my bed at mm -hmm. this time. Um, then I was like, well, they ain't called it. I'm not going to look. And for some reason, like, my alarm went off, went off and uh, a Katy Perry song came on. I was like, why am I up? And I turned on the TV and I was like, really? This happened? And I was just turned it off and I just laid there. And I didn't look at news for a good month because mm -hmm. I didn't want to hear any pundits. I didn't want to hear any pollsters because I was like, everyone's wrong. Uh, and we shouldn't put our faith in people like that. Our blind faith in like pollsters and people being energized mm -hmm. to go out and vote. Like you mentioned earlier, you actually got to be in these communities. And I think Democrats now are actually listening to people in the communities and trying to get ground, like on the ground coalitions to to people who are just regular average mm -hmm. Joe people. Well, I'm not saying like everyone is regular average Joe, but just like the people who aren't into politics every day, like figure out what they need and what their needs are and tell them like, this is what big government can do and this is what your local government can do. So you can form these coalitions early enough so you can have an understanding of what's going on. And do you think at this juncture, is there a clear front runner no. in your mind? No, there's no clear front runner. Mm -hmm. There's too many, too many people out there. And even if it was a clear front runner, things could change like like with a tweet, with a sound bite. So like I don't want to put too much pressure on anybody right now where everyone's still trying to run their can uh, campaign. I, I like how it's a very diverse, uh, a very a very diverse pool of candidates mm -hmm. right now. Uh like from all over the country. Um like you know, we have mayors running, we have senators running, we have business people running. So it's 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 good that everyone's trying to get out there and get their right. voice and their message out there. And hopefully we can come to a consensus like with one person and I'm like, okay, this is the best message for America. Uh, as a whole, instead of like America on the East Coast, on the West Coast or the South, it's America as a whole that we need to be concerned about. Absolutely. Um, so shifting a little bit back to your personal story, sure. you mentioned something that I think a lot of 26ers can relate to, and yeah. that is looking at somebody as the blueprint yeah. and then trying to mirror that and yeah. thinking if I just do steps you know, A through H, I can have this outcome. Yeah. And we sometimes, I think, can fall into victim mode when yep. we make the right decisions or what we think are the right decisions. And, and the outcome is not what it's supposed to be. So it's like, I colored inside the lines. I did what I was supposed to do. Yeah. I followed the road that was set for me. I went to college. I got a degree. Right. Like, you know, I, I took this internship. Yeah. Like, I we do fall in that, into that mode a lot. But just because you're like you're mirroring a journey, it, it it's not telling you everything that this person went through. Mm -hmm. And I feel like at this point in my life, I feel a lot of stuff uh, for me. I was like, well, I'm still learning. I'm mm -hmm. still learning as a person who I want to be. I'm seeing this person as a blueprint, but I know this isn't it's like a Lego design. Like right. you, you see it, but you can deviate from it and you can make it your own and you can make it your own 
make it as unique as you want it to be. Like, I'm a person who is very, like, I'm discovering more of my creative side all the time. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm creating stuff, I'm touching stuff, I'm moving in certain directions. And I was like, okay, this is the type of life that I want to have. And this is how I want to be a creative and be a political and be a person who influences people for positive, positive change. And like, it's no, it's no end goal to that. There's no finish to that. It's not finite. It's infinite. And I'm able to continue to grow. And as I continue to grow in my skills I'm, and as a person, I'm going to continue to impact change and impact the lives of people around me. Do you think there was one pivotal moment where you had an, an epiphany and said, nope, there's not a specific blueprint that, that I need to be following? Or do you think that, that realization came over, over time as a slow evolution? I think it was a slow evolution, especially being it's it's hard when you're in your mid twenties and you're like you're in you're in your dream position. Like this is what I always wanted right. to do. Um, like how do you grow from that? Like I knew my only goal was like I want to be uh, in in politics and policy and influencing change. And this is where I am. I'm I'm in Congress. I'm flu- influencing change. I'm hosting events. Mm-hmm. I'm putting together events and talking points. And like I have the ear of somebody who's very inf- in powerful and influential. And then I looked at myself. I'm like, okay, what can you do now? What's next for you, Jason? Then I, I was like, well, this is what else I want to do. Um, like, I decided to pick up photography. Mm-hmm. Uh, I picked up photography in 2014 and as a hobby. Then it's grown so much, so much since then. Mm-hmm. So, like, I've been featuring a couple of... Uh, like publication, national publications. Like I get booked for gigs in different places. I go to concerts and like, it's a craft that mm-hmm. I really like hone, like hone every day and try to go out and make it better. Uh, just as, just like being into politics and campaigning, that's a craft that I've learned every day. Now I continue to try to make it better and like, what do people want and what do people need mm-hmm. and how can I speak up for the voiceless? So now I'm marrying those two things together. Uh, like it, I'm marrying other stuff together with it, but I'm marrying those two things together because I use my camera as a weapon for justice, just like Gordon Parks. Like I see injustices, I see things that I want to change. I want to highlight stories that, that never get told and having a camera helps me do that. So tell me some of the ways in which you feel like you are an activist at this point with that camera. How is that playing out in your day-to-day life, especially because you work in the mayor's office and you're a student at NYU? <laughs> well, Because, like, <laughs> I mean, we this, all know these days uh, people will pull your coattail. Yeah, like, I, I'm not, like, I wouldn't come, I'm an activist, like, in the basic level terms because mm-hmm. I have friends who are really in the trenches. Mm-hmm. But, like, I... I go to events and I share share my stories of people. Uh, I, I wouldn't say it's like a Humans of New York type mm-hmm. thing, but I do like highlight stories. Like right now, I'm trying to get a piece in the New York Times around my neighborhood floors, who is a small minority woman on, well, small, a small business owner, woman-owned business. She's 31. Her name is La Paris, and she owns a florist. And the vibe of the shop is more so like a barbershop. Mm-hmm. And it's a community space. Like, people come in. Uh, people come in and talk to her. Uh, they don't really... Most of the time, like, sometimes they don't even buy flowers. She... she call, has a... Young women in the neighborhood call her Miss La Paris. Mm-hmm. And it's it's very... It's very communal when people come in and just like share moments with her. And then you have people who are coming into the neighborhood and buying floral arrangements. And and she's not really like she's a florist, but she's more of a floral designer. And she creates these masterpieces and telling her story and knowing that there are a lot of black business owners, small business owners still in Brooklyn, New York, in Bed-Stuy. I'm highlighting like the plight of like keeping businesses there and keeping like black owned or, or people of color businesses in this area. Mm-hmm. So this is part of an activism for me, knowing that I can highlight these stories that probably would never get told. Another other thing, like highlighting the barbershops, highlighting other businesses and highlighting just the community itself and how it's evolving and changing. And so people can see it from the outside and preserve this history and continue to push for like 
us to stay and keep these homes and keep, continue to not sell sell out and make millions of dollars, but continue to be there so we can um, preserve it for future generations. So that's what I call activism. And I think that is a valid, you know, form of activism. Ironically, we are in a raw space today, <laughs> uh, surrounded by construction in an yeah. area that is going through that change. Um, and, you know, we've been in this space a couple of times now, and I was like dying the first morning we came over and the people that you see running yeah. in, in Bushwick. <laughs> it's like, oh, really? Is that what we're doing? But, you know, I, I think... They had on shorts, too. I was like, it's yeah, cold. You, well, see, you're an Alabama boy, so, you know, for you, this is cold. I yeah. think it's a little bit cold, but for people here who are used to this, like, this is spring. Like, they're like, <laughs> lose the jacket, whatever. But that's how you get sick when, you're, when your blood is not ready for, for it. For those listening, it is 60 <laughs> degrees. Like, that may be New York spring to you, but it's 60 degrees. It's somebody, like, somebody, I ain't calling nobody out, but they had on open toe shoes. <laughs> and I was like, Lord Jesus. <laughs> I don't, I don't know what's going on, but they they made it happen. They look fly, though, but I, I couldn't do it. Jason calling out one of our crew members. <laughs> I'm not going to call her by name. I mean, listen, it's supposed to be like 62 today. That's my like, sun's out, toes out. You got that Alabama blood. That, that's why you, you right. just not, you know, you just you not right. clear. But I always say this is the weather that gets you sick. You that pneumonia weather. Be, yes, because... You know, it's fine during the day and that hawk comes back out at night. That hawk. You know, so it's a different situation. That hawk, boy. <laughs> oh, man. So, but yes, we we make light of, you know, the joggers and the, the hipsters and all that stuff. But the reality of it is the threat is imminent yes. that our businesses and our business, the business owners who look like us um, will be pushed out and not necessarily pushed out or necessarily forced out, yeah. but being incentivized. We're like, I'm about to take this money and, and go. Yeah, um, cash out. Yeah. So so what do you think, what are some other ways that that can be combated? You know, featuring those stories and preserving history is one thing, yeah. but how do we actively, from a political perspective or otherwise, prevent that from happening? I don't know. That's a good question. That's, mm -hmm. that's very difficult. I don't know how uh like like what's like how we can incentivize people more to stay in their mm -hmm. communities uh like i i know like for for homes and houses like we just need to like help educate our families like this is some place that you need to keep that can mm -hmm. be generational and just pay just pay the taxes it's already paid for like just continue to pay taxes and work out something so you can stay here and keep this in the family and like at least like rent it out and continue to build for the businesses i know a lot of businesses don't own their spaces so the right. rent continues to go up go up and makes it like really untenable for them to stay there. So mm -hmm. it's like difficult for you to be a, a business owner and like, okay, how can I keep this space that I've had for years if I can't make it a historic site or something mm -hmm. like that? How can I keep this space? And the best option for you is to make that money and like get the $2 million or $3 million mm -hmm. check to move someplace else. It's a, it's a business that I ran into yesterday that was going out of business, a shoe store. And they were there for 25 years. And she fought off and fought off and fought off. And she would not sell everybody around her soul. And the rent just became too much for her to stay there. So she was like, well, I'm, I'm, I have to take this money now because I can't, like, actually run my business the way I want to run my business because it's too it's too expensive. Mm -hmm. So she took $3.5 million and she said she was going to move. She told me, she was like, put your name on this list. Where I, where I move to next, you can come there because... It's, uh, I'm still going to be in Brooklyn. I just can't be on this block. Right. And I mean, the, the money is real. The it's money nothing is real. to sneeze at. But in any case, you know, before we move off this political subject, yeah. let's talk a little bit about Obama's legacy, right? Because, yeah. you know, you have the people who are fanatics of yeah. both Barack and Michelle. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have the critics who say he yeah, sold yeah, he sold folk. us a bill of goods. He got in there and didn't do anything for us. What do you say to those people? I don't think he didn't, didn't do anything for us. I feel like he worked in what, it worked in, inside the constraints that he had. Uh, I like, and this may be a little bit controversial, but I think, like, Barack was a deal maker and he was more moderate than he was progressive. And I, mm -hmm. I think a lot of people want us for wanted us to put Barack in this pro progressive box, which he's not. He's He says stuff in a way that makes us feel good, but his actions were more so like, you know what, I'm going to be center left on a lot of issues, which is good to me because I'm more a moderate person myself and I see stuff in that from that lens. But I think a lot of people want him like, I want a black bill or I want a brown bill or I want something that, well, like, 
disrupt the system. Right. Um, I, I don't think he was that type of person. He was never that type of person. But I appreciate the, the things that he did change. I appreciate mm-hmm. the efforts that he did make because he was he had a good character. He was somebody that people should or people could aspire to be. Mm-hmm. Like he, he was somebody with a funny name. He was somebody who put in the work. And he was somebody who had a family that we wanted. Uh, we can look at and emulate or, like, look at and say, like, I want my Michelle or I want my mm-hmm. Barack. I'm not saying, like, everybody should, like, be Michelle or be Barack. They're their own people. But it's somebody that we can look at as uh, in, in the positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think his lasting legacy will be something that um, we look at and we just see someone who tried and someone who tried to bring the country together and someone who did, uh, who inspires like a lot of hope, a lot of change, and a lot of happy feelings for us to continue to press for what we want to see good in this country. So moving back to your personal story and the what things you know, that <laughs> you what are you into know? and passionate about, yeah. before it gets too late in the interview, I want to yeah. talk about the Hustlers Guild. Yes, HG. So tell me you about know. that. Uh, so the Hustlers Guild is a nonprofit organization that seeks to inspire you to become innovators in their community and nationwide through STEM and STEAM education. I founded the Hustlers Guild uh, with three Obama alums, uh, Yasmin, Selena, uh, Kevin Beckford, and myself. Like, we... Uh, we were doing our own pursuits in nonprofit and working and mentoring youth. Um, then Yasmin, like the mastermind behind it all, because you all should trust black women. Because... Uh, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> She came up and we're like, so why won't we bring pool our efforts together and make an organization that helps youth in the District of Columbia and abroad? So Yasmin brought us together, and we've been operating for two years now. Um, and we, we work in three schools, three or four schools in the DMV area. We're looking to expand. But we're, we're, we seek to peak youth interest in STEM and STEAM education mm-hmm. by influ- like infusing hip-hop culture. Okay. Uh, hip-hop culture and popular culture and music. Uh, to get them interested in non-traditional STEM careers. Because, like, when you think of STEM, like, you're thinking, like, NASA or engineering. Yeah. Like, you're not thinking about the stuff that you use every day, like a cell phone or, like, Instagram or Facebook. Or, like, when you're listening to music, who is actually mixing the music? Who's the engine sound engineer behind that? Like, it's a lot of stuff that you can be interested in the STEAM realm uh, without going the route of being, like, a scientist. So we're trying to get uh, our youth interested early enough so they can impact change for the next generation. Uh, a lot of the, like, we've had partnerships with Apple, Rock Nation, uh, Complex. A lot of people have come uh, into our organization to speak to our kids, and it's been one heck of a ride. So for those who don't know, because most people know the term STEM, what is STEAM? So science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics. So like we got to, don't leave off the arts. And it's interesting because I think sometimes art gets a bad rap. Yep. Like, you know, and I've had this conversation with a number of people who are like, you know, oh, I'm going to push my kids towards them. That's what the money mm-hmm. is. You know, we're in the digital age tech, science, mm-hmm. you know, engineering, math. You don't hear people put the same emphasis on, the, on art. the arts. So within your mission with the Hustlers Guild, how do you present that aspect as a viable option for you? Oh, that's wonderful. Because once you, when you're thinking about like STEM or, or even even STEAM, like some people bring this up, like you're thinking about teaching somebody a job. Mm-hmm. You're like, like you're teaching, like how can I deal, do with this data? What about like engineering? Like how can I, how can I build this? Like we do a lot of that stuff. We do coding and stuff of that nature. But our main goal is to teach you in a, how to be innovators, how to be innovators in a space where you don't, ha- well, you have limited options or, or you don't have all the resources. How can you be creative and create a future for yourself and your family? like through the knowledge that you're learning here. So like, we'll teach you this, but how can you improve on those skills and think outside of the box? And using STEAM education is helping, well, the arts piece and STEAM in a whole is helping youth think outside of that box of what they see in their everyday reality and trying to make a better life for themselves and their family. So before the three of you started this, did you have experience working for with kids? Oh, man, I, I, I mentored adults. Well, like adult kids. Like, well, I don't know. Like, what do you call them? Like the age of 15 to 19? So like teen young adults. Teen right? young adults. Mm-hmm. That, that's my experience. I taught a GED class uh, in Georgia when I was living there. Like I also 
have like some mentors, like kids who have interned in my office that I continue to uh, stay in contact with. So it wasn't like a huge pool of people, but it was still like a good enough amount that I can like sew into their lives and just hang out with them and just like talk to them about their career goals and how I can help them. Uh, like it's a number of kids, like uh, one uh, one shining example was uh, Leland Shelton. He was, he came, he interned in my office. I got him his first internship on Capitol Hill. He was actually shot out. He He's a Morehouse graduate. He, he he got a shout out from President Obama during Morehouse's graduation, like when the rain was coming down. And Leland went on to go to Harvard Law School. Wow. And, and I was like, man, like you outpaced me, but I'm happy that you're in my circle. I'm continue to give you advice on what I can because you're doing amazing work. But I think the main thing about being in, youth like the lives of youth is consistency mm-hmm. like you can't do it as a one-off thing you can't be there like for one day and be like hey y'all uh you got to be there for like anytime they need you or multiple days so they can see your face and see your commitment level and they can expect to see you there and be present in their lives so they can go with you or be able to ping ping you whenever they need some assistance right i mean and i asked that question because it's easy to mentor like the ambitious kid mm-hmm. right in a political office or an internship but um one thing i've been thinking about lately as i speak to youth uh is there is no greater test in confidence as a speaker than speaking to a group of high school oh, students yes <laughs> Yes, because they were like, who is you? Literally, the they blank stare. Up. Like, even if they're into it, it's just human, teenagers and their nature is to look unaffected and unbothered. So that <laughs> that that is that's a correct statement. So like the youth that we work with, uh, we don't always work with like the most driven youth, like mm-hmm. the kids who are on, on, on a roll and stuff like this. We're working with like some youth that are over age or under credit or in alternative schools or state programs. And we're trying to get them interested as well knowing that, you know, you want these opportunities too. We want to get you out of your current situation and make you think and be innovative as well. So I I say that because I was like, we work with this population all the time. Right. And we also bring people that they respect or they see on television or see like in life uh, to come speak to them too, like credible messengers or people just who are in the industry. Like uh, during the summer, well, no, in September, we had a big event where we had Law from Rock Nation, Dr. Jess, who is... Um, uh, who's been who's the the psychiatrist on the uh the Breakfast Club and she does like other stuff around and she has her Be Well sessions Some radio personalities in the District of Columbia. Like we brought them to speak to the kids because the kids respect them because they see them on television right. and they have some kind of clout or credibility already. And that's how we get to continue to beat the message home and what they can be and what they could be and what they should be. You know, and you mentioned, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that you work with kids who are not necessarily at the top of the mm-hmm. class because everybody latches on to them. Yep. And when you're talking about specifically science, technology, math, all that great stuff. Mm. I think there's an expectation that you have to set kids on that path early. And if they have not demonstrated an academic or an intellectual ability to capture that stuff, then they're not the STEM kids. And it sounds like you are beating back against that stereotype. Yeah. So we're like we're rebelling against that stereotype. Mm-hmm. Like we we're, we also start younger, um, like with our code, coding sessions, but we also want to teach these skills to older kids, knowing that you know you may be able to take something away from this, and we don't want to make it seem like you're forgotten about. Mm-hmm. And like during these sessions when we are meeting with the older kids, we're teaching them life or life skills, stuff that they can like take with them past themes, past the high school experience, stuff that they can teach, uh, well, have with them, like, throughout life. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, how, what do you need when you talk to someone on an interview? What should your resume look like? How can you apply for college? What does financial aid look like? So it's, it's a lot of stuff that we teach them, the soft skills portion of it, mm-hmm. that will help them, like, even if they decide not to go into a STEM career. Right. And that's awesome. So, you know, you drop some names and like you guys have partnerships or have mm-hmm. had partnerships with some pretty big companies, some of the largest companies in the world. Um, and I know from personal experience that when you start something and and sometimes there could be this expe- expectation mm-hmm. that it's a philanthropic initiative. I'm doing this great thing. People are going to buy into it and they're going <laughs> to help me in any way that they can. Right. Now, I know you guys are three Obama administration alums, yeah. so your Rolodex might look, be a little bit deeper you know, than, <laughs> than the rest of us. But how did you get your foot in the door and not only get that, but also get people to say, this is the cause that I want to get behind? Oh, just it's, it's that Rolodex, like putting ourselves out there. So our initial funding came from our friends. We started GoFundMe 
and we did a PayPal thing. We're like, we need y'all money mm-hmm. uh, so we can like help these kids. And like, we made pitches. Uh, this is this was in our first two or three months, and we we're like, okay, like how can we be more legitimate? Like, we we already went through the five hundred one c three thing. Mm-hmm. We already went through like the tax stuff and getting like like our EINs and all that stuff. Like, which was heck in the websites and all this other stuff. But we needed more. Like, how can we get people to buy into what we're selling and what we're trying to do in our communities? Um, so we did that GoFundMe. Then we started meeting people who were working at different organizations. And we're like, okay, who do you know that works here? Like, this is a hip hop company. Who do you know works here? And I like I knew some people that worked at Facebook. I knew some people who worked at like uh, different places. Like, you know. Like Dr. Jess and I went to school together, so I was like at Complex. I know somebody from being in New York, just like tapping into there. So we like we really used our networks, and I think um, my partners they have a very deep network as well. Because like when we were living, like well, I know when I was living in DC, like I had my hands, like I told you, I never mm-hmm. liked to rest. So I had my hands in a number of different circles. I have a number of different friends. I hosted a, a first set, a first Friday event every month at a bar in DC, and a lot of people would come in there as well. So I just would tap into them and like, how can you help us build our brand and build our network so we can provide the very best opportunities for our youth? And it just happened. And it's happening and it it happened and it continues to happen uh, that we're making great strides to helping our youth. I think the lesson there is that you have to unabashedly yeah. Talk about what it is that you're trying to oh, do. Yeah. And even if you don't have a direct ask, asking the question, mm-hmm. who do you know that if you can't yeah. help, who do you know that might be interested? And I think that's something that can be really hard for people who are otherwise very ambitious. Yeah. You know, we're like, I'm trying to figure it all out. I'm getting my pitch decks together, my formalized, you know, approach. I'm going to send some emails, what have you. But like realizing that it does start, you know, charity begins at home. Mm-hmm. Right? It starts with that that closed village and being willing to say, we don't have it all figured out yet, but here's our core mission. And can you get behind it? Exactly. And sometimes, and I don't know if you went through this with the GoFundMe and the PayPal, but what I'm learning is it also might mean that you got to follow up a few times. Oh, yeah. And you have to like, you have to make sure your mindset is that like people are not willing to support me because it's not necessarily that it's just people are busy and they don't think about it. And Mm -hmm. it takes a a persistence, which takes me back to the point I was making earlier of like, it could be a great cause. Anything in your life can be what you are meant to do. It doesn't mean the doors are always going to fly open. That is correct. Uh, like I, I am a hustler, but I'm also like very like it, it took it takes me a while to get over the hump. I was like, I asked you twice. Mm-hmm. I don't want to ask you again. <laughs> right. Uh, and like I'm more in the mindset like I'll do it myself. Uh, but I'm I'm learning, and as the evolution process with me is like, okay, I need to be more consistent and, and confident and continue to ask people and not bugging people, continue to ask people like, you know, this is what we're doing. How, what role do, would you like to play in helping us? And it doesn't always have to be financial. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can be something as like, you know, you have space, let me use your space right. or you're this type of person you have this stature. Can you come in and talk to our youth because they respect you. They see you all the time on television. Like I know we can have this one-on-one, but it's not going to do anything because I know you in your real life. They need to know you. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot of that. And like, I, I, my, my, co-founder and like Yasmin she does a very good job at this like even pressing me like like you know this person like (laughs) this is your personal connection like you should be able to talk to them I'm like sure I'll talk to them and most of the time people are very like amenable to helping me out they're like Jason you like anything for you bro so like they'll come through so switching gears, tell me about a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Oh man, ah, extraordinary on ordinary day. I, like I think DB alluded to, to this like before the interview uh, started, but this is what I when I had to be extraordinary on ordinary day. So um, in October, November. I, I mentioned that I, I'm always working and doing stuff and keeping my mind occupied. Like, during that month, like, I lost uh, three very close people in my life, and it really impacted me, and I really took stock in that. And I, I still went into work because I like being busy and keeping me occupied and doing realistic things and hands-on things. Uh like gets me through a lot of situations. And it's not like I'm avoiding the problem. Mm -hmm. It's like I want to help people uh, with their problems. So I think uh, on a day that I lost, like after losing two, two very important people in my life, I lost one more very important person in my life. 
I did not go to work. But what I did instead, I went to a soup kitchen in Harlem and I volunteered that entire day. And it made so much, it made a big difference in my life because I wanted to get back to somebody mm-hmm. knowing that so much was taken away from me. So in what, a two-month period? Or? Yeah, two-month period. Two it was like uh, one of my uncles passed away on the way to another uncle's funeral. Wow. Yeah, that, that was that's a deep one. Like I like my so another one of my uncles had a tumor on his brain. He was um the the surgery was, was a success. Then he was able to he was he woke up talking for two or three days. Then he had a seizure. Then he went into a coma and never woke up. So during this time, like I was in Alabama like the week before with my other uncle who was suffering from lung cancer. And uh, I was with him hanging. Well, I was with him knowing that I wanted to be there for a week. I didn't know how sick he was, but I knew he was very, really sick. So I stayed there for a week with him, go back and visit my other uncle in D.C., go back to New York, find out my uncle passed in D.C., making the arrangements for my family, my mom and my aunt and my uncle to come up from Alabama to D.C. The day before they were scheduled to come up, well, the day that they were scheduled to come up on the train and the day before my other uncle's funeral in D.C., that's when my uncle suffered a seizure and died. So I had to cancel all those plans and and the hotel room and the train tickets uh, and deal with another loss. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I went to both of those funerals. Uh, Then like a week later, I lost uh, my father. Uh, And like a week after my uncle's funeral in Alabama, I lost my father. And like losing all these people back to back, like really impacted me. But I, like I'm really ha- I'm happy that I have a relationship with a higher power, mm-hmm. God and Jesus, and and also like not to discount like my relationship with a higher power. I also go to therapy, mm-hmm. so I had like a weekly therapy session. I was discussing these things. I was like, this has made me a stronger person because of it, and this is what I want to do. And like I'm not like I know they like I made peace with all of them. I talked to them, all of them before they passed away, and I was there and I was present. So that helped me get through a lot of things. How do you cope now? Not only this was the past, this past fall. Yeah, this past fall. Right. This was not, not even a year. So this is raw. This right? is raw. And we all know that grief is not a straight line. Yeah. Right. You can get out of one phase and then start a new one and come back and then <laughs> swing back around. Yeah. And some days are better than others. But not only losing three people back to back, but also three losing three male figures. Yeah. And as a black man, mm-hmm. right? To me, there's there's a gravity there that's even heavier. How do you deal with that void, or what are the conversations that you're having with your therapist or other people <laughs> to cope with it? I like he thinks I'm pretty well adjusted. Mm-hmm. Like I think I brought it up like in one session, they were like, "It seems like you made made peace with us." I was like, "Yeah, I did," and I I I know how I am when I need to be active, and mm-hmm. I think like being being in a space where I was providing service to other people, mm-hmm. like who really needed it, helped me out in that in that way too. Another aspect of like why I can cope so well is because my family is silly and like we, we use <laughs> we use comedy for everything. So Fine like find levity. levity. So like if if my mom or my aunt call would call me or my cousins would call me, like especially in the middle of the day, I I would say like it's it's eleven o'clock. I would answer the phone like who died today? And, <laughs> and it was like, you gotta stop saying that. It's like somebody gonna be really dead. I could be dead on the phone. I was like, you wouldn't be calling me. Who died today? So like using like comedy and like using like my family being the way that they are. Mm-hmm. And like I'm the baby. Uh so like like I think being the baby in the family usually means like you're the like less controversial one sure. like n- no one no one really like has a gripe with you yet because you ain't pissed nobody <laughs> off for years they were like oh that's Jason like he ain't doing nothing but uh but everyone like kind of calls me and I have a conversation with them and and like it it really centers me like having that familiar uh, that family unit that is silly and like like supportive has been like a saving grace because I think if we were were we were more dysfunctional, mm-hmm. I'd probably be not a well-adjusted person, and I probably wouldn't be able to have this conversation right now. But they have really saved me. And what do you want your legacy to be? I don't know. That's very difficult. Uh, like I feel like I want to be able to connect people and help mm-hmm. people and and shepherd a change that 
like I would want to see and like would make our communities and our spaces better uh, and our country better. Um, like, I don't know what my end goal is because I'm always changing and evolving and figuring out ways to help people. That's what I want to do. Help people, help people who don't have a voice, help people in certain situations. But I also want to be able to take care of myself and, like, the people around me that I love. So whatever happens, like, years or generations from now, like, I want that to continue to be my le- legacy, that pe- he was someone that I could depend on and trust mm-hmm. on and was able to help help me. And he didn't have to do it, but he did because somebody sold into my life and they didn't have to do it, but they did. They were present. And do you feel like that loss has accelerated or intensified your drive to leave a certain legacy? I don't know. Like, I feel like I've always been this way. Mm -hmm. Uh, Always wanted to do more and figure out what I like and what my passions are because I I tend to dive into a lot of things and I tend to meet a lot of people. And in some aspects, it could have it could have expedited things. It could have made me more driven because I know like life is only what you make it. Mm-hmm. And life is so short. Like you never know what's going to happen around the corner. But I'm still as active or still as passionate as I was before. Mm-hmm. And I got to ask, do you get a little anxiety when the phone rings from back home? Besides the joke about <laughs> Because, listen, as somebody who has been through that, yeah. like those back-to-backs, yeah. every time your phone, it's like you have PTSD. Yeah. You're like, what yeah. is, and you do make light of it, but like, for real, for real, I, you're like, I, when's I, the other shoe going to drop? Uh, like, only time I think I, I get anxiety is like, when I get a call from like my mom or my aunt, then like, I know you just finished calling me like one minute ago, but you're not answering the phone when mm-hmm. I call back. And I was like, then I had to realize like, they just got raptured today and I was left behind. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, like I don't. They're they're older and they don't like carrying their phones around, mm-hmm. or they just keep it in their purse. And I was like, what's the point of having cell phones? But I do get a little bit of anxiety. But mo- most of the time, like I know, like other people will call me, and it wouldn't be a call from just one person if mm-hmm. that happened. So uh, not as anxiety inducing, but it's still like a little bit there. But I try to be level about it. And we're like. You know, this is happening. Uh, I, I think my cousin called, like, I was on the phone with my cousin. Dang, this is getting really morbid. I was on the phone with my cousin, like, Tuesday, Tuesday or Wednesday. And she called me around 11 o'clock at night and FaceTimed me. And I was like, you know, we had that age of people just dying. Mm-hmm. And, and what you got to say now is like, man, they dying. But they lived a long, good life, Lord. So that's, that's what we do now. Mm-hmm. Like you can't really say anything. You're like, oh, I I know somebody who is 92, still walking around, still look um Estelle, like still look good, still cooking dinner at 92. And I was like, if she passed today, I was like, oh, she lived a good life, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And yeah, you know, I mean, we're joking, but I asked that question because one of the things that we like to highlight on the show is the humanity of the day to day that yeah. we live with as 26ers and achievers. Like you have all this stuff that you're into, but there is real life happening in the background and you're navigating yeah. grief. You're navigating the aftermath of trauma and having to work within the confines of that and keep your emotions and sometimes the psychosis of it in check as well. Yeah. Which is not always easy. It's not always easy. Like that's why I'm like I'm I'm very involved. I go to Emmanuel Baptist Church in Brooklyn. Uh, I go like I see my therapist. I have a great friend circle. So it's it's stuff. And like even now, like people who are listening to this podcast, who are my friends, they probably this is the first time I'm telling a lot of people that like I had this this many loss. Really? Yeah. So I I rather keep that part of me. Like you know, like I'm I felt supported. Like mm-hmm. I felt supported, but I don't like want to. Like, this is something else that I'm going in therapy. It was like, I don't feel like I want to share that with everyone because I don't know, like, what their support looks like. Sure. And I know what people's, like, the people around me, how I, who I have known for longer periods of time or somebody who are, some people who are really close to me. I know what their support looks like. And I know that they've lost somebody too. Mm-hmm. So we can talk about these things because, you know, sometimes you don't want to be like, yeah, whatever I, whatever you need, bruh, or like whatever right. you need. Or like, that's not like really helpful in some moments of life. But you want to know, like, you want to hear somebody like, yo, let's just get up and go get some drinks. Mm-hmm. So you want to do this, something like this. Um, I have a friend, I'm not going to mention his name, but I have a friend who's from L.A. who lives out here, and he lost one of his brothers, uh, well, his brother, uh, recently. And, like, I was talking to him, and I was checking up in, on him. I was like, bro, like, 
Like, I'm here. I'm just like, if you need me, like, a voice or a shoulder, I'm down. Or if you just want to be silent in a room, like, and you want to come over, I'm down. Or you just want to be around people, whatever you, like, like whatever I can do to help you in that moment. Or you... I just leave you alone and you just hit me up when you want to be talk or want to talk. And he did that. And like, we went to a play probably like a month after his brother passed. And like, it was his first time out of the house and it was a good show. And like, during that time, I was like, I had every reason to like, man, it's, it's snowing outside. Mm-hmm. These roads are horrible. It's cold. I don't want to go. But I knew like, for me, I would want somebody just to show up. Right. Just show up and be there. So that's what, re- that's what friendship really is. And like, that's when, when somebody needs something. Something, you have to really be in tune like with what that friend wants and what that friend needs at the moment. If they need to be out regardless of the circumstances, you better show up because that's what friendship is. Absolutely. So before we wrap this up and let you get out of here, sure. what's on the horizon for Jason Spears? Oh, graduation is in May. I'm trying to figure out where I'm going to be next. If mm-hmm. I'm going to be in New York or I'm going to be in D.C. or Atlanta or maybe L.A. I'm looking for, uh, right, I'm, I'm interviewing a couple uh, jobs. I'm still going to be doing the Hustlers Guild. I'm mm-hmm. still going to be doing photography. Um, like my fellowship in the mayor's office ends probably in two or, two or three months. Um because it's a graduate fellowship like while I'm in school and just try to figure out where I want to be. Um, I'm doing all these amazing things and interviewing all of these amazing places, but I really want to do some work that's calling to me. Mm-hmm. Um, either being in an entertainment space, doing social impact work and corporate social responsibility. Where I want to do is connect people and connect issues uh, to the greater, like, greater realm of possibility. So that's what I'm doing next. Awesome. And where can people find you and the Hustlers Guild online and how can oh, they support? Yeah. So, of course, the hustlersguild.org uh, is our website. It's like all all there, T-H-E, hustlersguild.org or our Instagram. Uh, our <laughs> Instagram. Uh, our Instagram, the Hustlers Guild uh, on IG. If you want to follow me and my photography, uh, uh, the J spot photo, T H E, the letter J S P O T photo. Uh, that's me. Uh, and like, there's a lot of stuff out there. Like, I'm pretty sure I'll give you some links if you want to try to find me. Of course. Well, thank you for coming on the show. I've appreciated this Southern chill vibe. Oh, today. man, this is awesome. This you know, we, we were turning up before we turned We these, were. That was you with the, the, uh... the real, the last <laughs> Mr. Big. Yes. Half of our population is not even going to know. <laughs> Half of them won't know. But the other half will. Yes. (laughs) Take that shit. Drown. <laughs> <laughs> You're a character. This I know for sure. We appreciate it. Like once again, gotta have the levity. You gotta have the levity. Exactly. It's a balance. To those who are listening, to my mama who listens to every episode, don't go look up the last Mr. Big. Don't do it. Um, <laughs> It'll change your life. Uh, but to the rest of you, make sure you check out the Hustlers Guild. <laughs> And Jason came in with the the big camera. He's really doing it with this photography. So check him out online. And as always, remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thoval. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.